You're listening to Opera Night on RTE Lyric FM. I'm Francesco Cilluffo. Uh, principal conductor of the festival and I'm conducting La Tempesta by Alevi. Particularly, I think what makes this opera very interesting and very modern and potentially one of the reasons why it wasn't, you know, so much appreciated at that time, why it didn't stay on in the repertoire, is that the focus is really on Caliban as someone who's different, someone who has clearly issues with being, you know, let's say just very roughly, like, you know, ugly and different, Compared it's, to, yeah. It's a very sympathetic approach. It's a very sympathetic, and I always think that it's amazing that only two years after this, Verdi would write Rigoletto, yet another opera about a character who's deformed in that case and who's different. And you think isolation is a yes, thing here? Yes, I think isolation, diversity, and also longing for, for something that is very completely opposite of what one is. In this case, Caliban longs for Miranda that to him represents everything that is pure, everything that is distant, everything that is magic. Um, as much as in Rigoletto, the love for his daughter was the best part of him, but then it was all, all the kind of the bullying of society around him and the court. Um, so there are quite strong similarities. And I think that by putting the magnifying lenses on a character that is not immediately your hero character, but rather the villain, but put in a sympathetic way, Halevi did something extremely modern. And actually, some of the best music of the, in the opera is actually Caliban's music. When you start the research on a piece such as this, um, you've already referred um, to the Shakespeare text, which you are clearly very familiar with. But is there anything that comes first? I'm, what I'm saying, basically, is do you think immediately of the score or the action, or do you just not think that way at all? Uh, well, in this case, I have, I have to say it's the first time in my career in which I actually do such an operation because, of course, we were getting... Because there was only the, there was only the autograph score in the, in the library of the Paris Opera House. There was no published version ever. So in a way, it was quite an exciting journey because I was getting, as the conductor, the first proof of, of the typing, the typeset of the score, and I was discovering by, by getting it, like each number. So it was like, I suppose, like, you know, the readers of the, the first readers of Charles Dickens' novels, you know, it was arriving in installment, and one was always wondering, what's next? It's uh, an interesting connection here yeah. to the past because... Um, one of the local things of interest to us about this is the fact that the first director, musical director, was actually uh, Michael William Balfe back in 1850. Yes, and actually I think that was very special because, as we know, Balfe spent a lot of his childhood in Wexford. So I think it was very, f- it was very special for me coming to the Opera House because, you know, there is this, you know, there is this portrait there just outside to think that what we had in common was that he conducted the, the world premiere of this opera and I'm conducting the, the, you know, the modern premiere of this opera. And in a way, another world premiere because the main difference is that we are for the first time ever in history performing the role of Ariel as Halevi initially thought it, which is sang by a soprano, because we know that because suddenly in the London premiere, 
the famous dancer Carlotta Grisi was available, and Alivifo to give Ariel, um, to make Ariel a dance role, not a singer. But all this music that he had already written for Ariel to be sang has never been performed ever. So this is actually quite uh, astonishing. And the other Irish connection, of course, that the first Ariel in history to be sang is actually an Irish soprano, Jade Phoenix, oh, uh, who was of part of the factory here. Um, so I love the idea that there is this con- Irish connection all the way through between Italy, France, and London and Wexford. I think that makes it very special. When you start preparations for a, a, a piece such as this, and it's very obvious just talking to you, how involved you are in it and everything, and way beyond even the score. Yeah. When do you start the pre- how long How long ahead do you tend to think? Well, in this case, I would say a, a whole year. I mean, normally, I normally like to sink in a score, you know, in six months, if I am allowed the luxury. I mean, of course, sometimes we do as conductor what is called the jumping when you just have to kind of step in and so of course you know it's either an opera that you know already or, have, or you have very short time to to learn it but in this case it was a whole year process because first the first um, the, the piano score was gradually arriving and we were making correction we were because all the material has not been used for 170 years mm. um and then on top of that their orchestration started to arrive and in the meantime i started to meet with the director roberto catalano trying to make sense of how how can we tell the story today? How can we make this relevant to us today? Uh, and as always happens in, in Wexford, or another part, which I think why I call Wexford in a way an act of love, is that we are bringing this opera that that were huge success in, in, in their own time, and we're trying to shape them in a way that can have a second life nowadays and, uh, and appeal to the public of today. So it was a very long process. It is interesting when you say that, and, and we referred earlier on to Resurrezione, which was an adaptation of a Tolstoy novel. Now, actually, you would think on paper, you would think, well, of course, that would be ideal for opera. So few of those. That is one of the points of Wexford, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I think... Uh, um, it's a perfect combination, I think, between uh, historical and musicologist in- interest, because, of course, this is, you know, you need to know about the story, you need to know about everything else. But at the same time, we treat the opera as a, as a living matter, as something that is alive and needs to be helped in get across the audience today. And I think it's, a, it's quite a privilege that we can get to do this. Uh, uh, moving forward now, looking forward to next year, as we always do here at Wexford, the next season always brings on the one to follow and we are uh, fascinated already, I think, by the general theme, which is women and war. One opera that uh, probably leaps off next year's uh, repertoire is Two Women, of course, because of the very famous film from the 1960s, now to be realised as an opera here at Wexford, and you will be musical director. Yes, it's it's an amazing opera. It's a really a, an incredible opera that deals with a theme, as you said, of w- women in war, particularly close home for, for me as an Italian because it tells about the horrors of the end of the Second World War in Italy. Um, and, and an extremely powerful opera written by Italian composer Marco Tutino, whom uh, operas I have actually performed in the past as well. And it, it, I think it's a perfect, a perfect um, opera for the festival because it's 
It brings all the amazing Italian Verismo tradition, but with a total modern approach, very cinematic. And the opera is, uh, was premiered in San Francisco a few years ago and was an incredible success. Did you see it at all? Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't in San Francisco, but I did see the, the, the video of it. Yep. And I know the score already quite well. So we're in, a, in, a, in a way, it's completely the opposite of what I did this year, you know, bringing back something from a dead composer of 170 years. Mm-hmm. And here we have a living composer that I work with, whose style I know. Um, and it's incredible because I think... It's, it, it sends a powerful message about um, not only war, but about women's condition through the war and how war is seen from not from the eyes of the people who make it or provoke it, but by the victim's eye, uh, which is, if you think about it, one of the key of uh, very many successful operas. I mean, even repertoire opera, if you think you know, of about Andrea Chenier or other things, you know, where French Revolution is just in the background, but the focus is on the on the private, on the on on, on the private drama of a family that is scattered by what happens around it. And I think the, the the audience would love it because the music is extremely romantic, is extremely immediate, communicative, and in a way because of course it comes. It was inspired by the book that inspired the movie, but is definitely inspired by the movie itself. Um, it it has something iconic and very strong because the movie, as you know, you know, with Sophia Loren was part of what the so-called neorealism in in Italian cinema history. And that was really like as operatic as you could get on, you know, on the screen. And it made a huge impression at the time. She won her Oscar for that, of course. And uh, it opened the world's eyes probably more to Italian cinema than than previously. You know, it brought it right mainstream. These very difficult and challenging subjects, uh, as you say. Another thing that's interesting about it uh, has to be the fact that in this last just number of months nearly, uh, it's become hugely relevant again. I think so. And of course, I mean, when we did initially plan this theme, we could not really imagine that we would be in a war talking about this, mm-hmm. uh, which is, of course, extremely sad and upsetting. Although we do hope that by the time we go on, on stage next year, things will be solved. Yes, we don't want to tempt Providence. Uh, no, no, definitely. But I think, yes, uh, you know, in this, in this moment, we are all dealing, you know, with the news, with people that we know, the contacts we have in our world, uh, with what... Me- what it means to be at war at the same time because you know the the the, the english title of the of the movie and of the opera is two women and and of course that focuses on the relationship between mother and daughter and how they these two generation of strong incredible strong women go through war and um, and we you know we just need to open the news now to see what happens to to women and to children uh, who are the first victim of the, of this war and and I think in a way that opera has always been a medium that immediately because the way it's conceived the, the way the music gets immediately to you without even even before you get any word out of, of the singer it's one of the most powerful tools that that really kind of com- can communicate what the message is about war and again I think that Marco Tutino's music is completely on, spot on about this and I think in a way going back to the Lorraine movie um, it's how it in a way kind of embraces the, the Italian tradition but it 
speaks through a completely modern and relevant today language. And a universal language. Absolutely, yes. Francesco Cilufo, it's always such um, a pleasure to be able to spend a bit of time with you, particularly as you're so involved and uh, at our time of meeting now. We're in the middle of this year's festival. Yes. Uh, but it's great that you've been able to lend us insight to yet another stunning production in which you've been involved. And uh, we look forward to, of course, lots more to come. Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Jade Phoenix and I'm singing the role of Ariele in La Tempesta. Jade, welcome to RT Lyric FM and thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time today because things are still busy at the festival at the minute. We're sort of halfway or just past the halfway mark and there are gala performances and all sorts of other things that come into being at Wexford. It's all part of the joy of this festival, I think. But we want to um, talk particularly about your role in this um, rather extraordinary production, La Tempesta, of course, based on the uh, Shakespeare original. And uh, you have one of the lovely roles in this um, uh, a rather universal character, if I can put it that way, and I'm referring to the spirit of the piece, um, Ariel. You must have enjoyed it. Oh, I absolutely have. There's one more performance left and I don't want to say goodbye to her. There's a huge responsibility in singing this role, particularly because it's never been sung before. So it's actually a world premiere. Originally, when this um, this opera was done, it was performed by a dancer. And Wexford found one of the original scores with the music for Ariely. So they decided to to cast me as Ariely. So it's a, it's a world premiere. So myself and... Uh, Maestro Chalufa are creating the role, which is very exciting. And uh, magic and music is, of course, the, the theme covering this festival, but probably this particular piece is the, the epitome of that notion and idea in many ways. Ariel is um, a powerful character. Yes, she, I think she's very clever, manipulative, and she knows exactly what she's about and what she's doing. I think in the in the libretto and in the original Shakespeare play, they're quite different um, character-wise. In the play, she is a man, actually. And in the yeah. libretto that we have, she's played as a woman. Um, and the relationship with Prospero in this opera is quite different than the play. In the play, at least in my opinion, she she doesn't like Prospero at all. She's she's captive to him. She she doesn't want to do any of his bidding. In the opera, not so much. She's almost happy to do his bidding as long as it helps Miranda. The balance in this interpretation, I think, of the play is different also in uh, other um, uh, telling us of this story, Prospero very often is is the most powerful person. That's not the case here. No, no, but I think Ariel loves to let him think that he is. <laughs> so it's a political role. Yeah. <laughs> this is your professional debut, in fact, so it is a very, um, uh, it's a very important stage in your career. Um, presumably, you... Uh, have developed through the ranks of the programme then here at Wexford to this stage. So this place is very significant for you. Absolutely. So I did the the factory programme for two years and this is my professional debut with Wexford and I'm absolutely loving it. It's It feels very much so like a full circle moment. 
um, to start here as a student and then to be asked back as a professional is an absolutely wonderful opportunity and I'm so grateful for it. I think it's interesting too that for, for this to occur at such a time because in terms of everything that has happened over these last two years and the pandemic and so on, though we have uh, ourselves been lucky enough to broadcast and to, to stay with the festival through that online season and so on, um, it has been a very difficult time for young performers and particularly at your stage. I think I was very fortunate actually when kind of everything hit the fan I was doing my BA in the Royal Irish Academy of Music so I was in my final year I got to do my exam in person which was fantastic but everything else kind of in the later half of the academic year was online so that was okay not ideal and then I had a summer of nothing um, like everyone else. And then I got to come to Wexford to do the factory programme. I know everything, the, the main operas got cancelled, but I know Rosetta was very, very keen to have something for the students. As we were, most of us were already living in Ireland, so it wouldn't have been breaking any guidelines to come and live in Wexford in a bubble. And we got to put on What Happened to Lucrece by Andrew Sinnott and Falstaff by Verdi. So that was my first kind of opera outside of college. That was two years ago. And then I went and did my master's in Guildhall. So I was was kind of fortunate because I was studying at that time, whereas I know a lot of my other friends and colleagues were, you know, going home to live with their parents. They, They couldn't afford rent. There was no kind of dole for singers. Everyone was, didn't know what to do. Also, you need, um, not only time, but, but literally space in which to practice. Sounds straightforward, but I don't imagine it is when space itself is, um, uh, uh, you know, at a premium. 100%. And you also lose motivation. If you're, if you're singing in a space that's in your mind, regardless of your home, you don't associate it with work. So your motivation absolutely plummets. Interesting. So in my apartment, I have a specific area where I practice. If I practice in another room, there's, there's some sort of mental switch in your head that's like, oh, this isn't right. So for me, when I was during the, the height of the pandemic, I was living with my parents and I didn't like pe- practicing in my parents' house and neither did my brother. <laughs> so I was so loud and annoying him all the time. Um, and he it was, was probably beautiful, I imagine. <laughs> anyway. Not when he's been hearing me scream since I was about <laughs> 11. Um, so trying to practice at home when I was so used to going into college, it was just absolutely no motivation. I talked to loads of other singers that felt the exact same thing. They so just, how, did, how did you drive yourself through that stage? Because at the time, well, you didn't. None of us knew when that was going to come to an end deadlines for me so learning the role of Alice I had it coming up in two months I had no choice but to kind of drill down and learn it I had I had a performance and also it was the the kind of hope that oh my god I'm actually going to get to perform this when everything else was shut off it was also that that was kind of an inspiration to to study although it was still very difficult just to it sounds dramatic, but just to find the will to sing when everything was shut off. Well, I don't think for any of us who, who, who um, lived through those times, uh, it would be dramatic. I think we can all <laughs> empathise with it and, and the frustration of it. It's very interesting to hear you also talk about literally the, the practicality of practice itself. Mm. You, know, in a, you know, I often wonder, um, 
do you just sort of throw caution to the wind when you're practicing in a space at home? You'd be able to wipe everything else out, or do you have a soundproof room? You know. Oh, I'm just very, very, very fortunate that I have lovely neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very lucky, but I know a lot of people who who aren't as fortunate and can't practice at home. So it, it was months on end for them of not practicing, and then maybe very occasionally getting a gig and kind of going well let's see what comes out today because they hadn't had the space to practice and online lessons were another thing entirely they were a nightmare most teachers would tell you it was absolute nightmare trying to teach people and and trying to also learn via zoom just a disaster because of the time lag and it's very important that you're in the room with the person so that you can hear you know, slight errors or tuning or breathing. This is, as I say, your professional debut. Um, so what were you doing just prior to this? I had my professional debut with uh, Opera Collective Ireland. I was singing the role of Iris um, with a touring production of Semele by Handel. And that led then straight to, to, to where you are now with this? Yes, I think I had four days off in between that and this and then it was packing my bag and then coming straight down to Wexford. It's sort of a great way to really get going again. It must mean a lot to you also to have um, this lovely part in uh, such a, a physically lovely circumstances. It's, it's a beautiful house here. Um, the newest house that we have in terms of opera, that's for sure. And um, the chance also to literally complete the circle with an audience. Oh, absolutely. The first year that we were here, um, there was no audience. It was I a remember, live stream well, there were, YouTube. We were there recording in the, to, to, to you know, carry the thing online along with the festival. But it was a very strange experience, you know, uh, there you were. I, I must say, actually, watching it, I was quite envious because you looked like a big jolly bubble of people. <laughs> and uh, there was only me, uh, which just wasn't the usual Wexford experience at all. Um, but that uh, feel of uh, course of energy, is, it's essential. Hmm. It was a very strange thing when we finished Falstaff and, you know, we finished the final, the final fugue, the final finale... And there was just silence. There was no one in the audience. And you can hear people clapping in the wings, you know, your your colleagues and all of the people behind the scenes that make opera what it is. It was just, it was a little disheartening because, you know, you're, you're looking out in an auditorium that's completely empty. But we, what we did was an amazing thing in a time where there was no art being produced um, or very little and I'm I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud to say that that was, you know, my first out of college opera that I ever did. And I think, uh, you know, I must say we were also very proud to be a part of it. It's interesting that you talk about that silence. I remember them well because I thought in some ways it was a deafening silence. Yeah. I mean, you, you could hear what was going on beyond, but you, you really had to feel that as, as best you could. But we are talking about the past now. We're looking forward to the future. What 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 is next for you? What would you what what ideas do you have up your sleeve? <laughs> well, um I'm a studio artist with Irish National Opera for the year and then I'll be coming back here next September to sing the role of Rosetta in La Trochara. Hey. 
So I'm incredibly, incredibly excited. Coming back to Wexford always feels like home, so... Well, I hope that... Uh, well, I'll be fortunate enough for our paths to cross again. But it's been a pleasure to meet you uh, and to spend a little time and also to get an insight as to, you know... Um, what these last few years have been like for our younger artists and the fact that there, you know, there are great things ahead. And uh, certainly for you, Jid, thank you very much for taking time out to talk to us today. And good luck with everything that's to come. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. My name is Rory Musgrave. I'm a baritone from Connemara and I'm singing the role of Alonso, Rey di Napoli in La Tempesta. It's a fantastic opera, a really, really lovely choice. And somehow, um, hands over the baton relay style from last year's Shakespearean-themed festival. We have a Shakespearean opera this year. But it does move away from the Shakespeare slightly in order to be uh, contained within the opera format. But in terms of magic, it's, it's marvellous. It really, really is such a fascinating piece you have a French composer composing for a London audience, but the dictate of the London audience at the time was that they wanted the Italian style. So you have this strange melting pot. And in some ways, The Tempest allows for that. It allows for that strange combination of personalities, of styles, and I think it creates an intriguing evening out. I really do. And I think that uh, you, as well as hearing beautiful singing from, uh, from the cast, I think what you'll also get is a rare gem that intersects not only literature but also history. And I think that that in of itself is a, a fantastic thing. One of the joys about working with Wexford is that you're often given the strange responsibility of breathing life into something that hasn't been heard for a long time. And this was first performed in 1850 and was never revived. And so, and also, the, one of the main characters, Ariel Ariele, was a dancer in the first production. So actually, this is in some ways the first time the opera is being heard in its complete form. And... That's an interesting responsibility to bear. But it's the completion of a circle. It is in respect. And whether the opera has life after Wexford is neither here nor there. That's, uh, that's up to fate. But I think that we can honestly say we've given this opera a really, really strong outing and given it a fair chance at life after this festival. And I think it's a very good incentive as to why you know, why we ought to come to this festival, yeah. you know, yes. because you just might miss something. Absolutely. Um, and there's always a potluck element. You've got to catch it when it's hot. That's you, well, well that's it. Catch it when it's hot. But also there's a potluck element. Mm -hmm. I think in some ways one of the advantages of Wexford is that there is a mystery box quality. You don't quite know what you're mm -hmm. going to get. But you're freed from the uh, preconceived notions. If you're going to a, a Tosca, La Boheme, it doesn't matter, La Traviata, you have a sense of recordings or other productions that you've heard before, and you'll always have this subliminal benchmark upon which you're measuring it. Often with these works, you're hearing them for the first time. And so everyone is tabula rasa. It's a lovely, lovely thing to be able it's to bring something the, new. It's, it's, it's the magical 
uh, alchemy really that works. Rory Musgrave, it's always a pleasure to spend time with you. We could spend a lot more time with you, uh, but uh, you're busy and uh, your stuff, and no doubt you'll probably be involved later on today as well, I imagine. So uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. It's lovely to catch up and uh, we'll do this again next year. Absolutely, it's my absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. you. You're listening to Opera Night on RTE Lyric FM. Thank you.